Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When I was working in the White House, I met a fellow named Anish Chopra, who is an uh, expert on technology, in particular in the healthcare area, but generally uh, in making systems more efficient by using technology and using the Internet. And he became a, a, an apostle of reform in the government, of using the internet to provide data to people, to make government services more accessible uh, to people. One of the most interesting guys uh, that I met when I was in Washington, and I sat down with him the other day to have a conversation about where we were, uh, where we are today, and where we're going to be tomorrow. Chopra, my, my old colleague from uh, White House days, the guy who uh, brought the uh, U.S. government into the 21st century uh, when it comes to technology uh, as the chief technology officer for the government. Were you the first chief technology officer for the government? Yes, sir. And I thank you for the uh, chance to be with you today. It was great to work with you all those years. Yeah, I... You know, it, it's kind of stunning when you think about it that you were the chief technology officer for the government and that there wasn't any... Uh, there wasn't any before you. I want to. I want to talk in a minute about what you found when you showed yeah. up there and what you left uh, when you left there. I also want to talk about your uh, your race for lieutenant governor, yes, your sir. foray into elective <laughs> elective From policy politics to politics. And what you learned about that. But tell me a little bit about how you became who you are. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your family and their journey and uh, uh, how you wound up. Uh, not not at this table, yes. but uh, at this point in life. Well, you know, thanks, David. I, I uh, you know, many Indian American families came post nineteen sixty five when Lyndon Johnson opened up the immigration um, rules, and like my uh, my parents were like many others, they came with graduate degrees to sort of live a better life. And uh, what was exciting about that time was the perception in our family was that you could do anything. You know, it didn't matter that my mom and dad grew up in a bit of a difficult environment. My dad literally was a refugee at the age of two. It had nothing uh, when they had to leave uh, what was then the Pakistan side of the Indian border when, when the country was divided. Uh, but the, the idea was if you learned a lot, studied hard, you could actually make it in this country. And so my passion, you know, growing up and as I thought about the world around me. The well, fl- let me just yeah. stop you for a second, because yeah. there's all this discussion now about immigrants. Oh, it's I'm so a son sad. Of Im- I'm yeah. a son of an immigrant, too. Um, how do you... Are you, Your folks are still around. Yeah. 
how do how do they feel and how how do you hear this whole it is whole debate? it is such an odd debate because the vibrancy of the country is all about immigrants joining participating engaging i think like 20 to 30% of the fortune 500 ceos had origins in or uh, their families were were immigrants either they were or they're the sons and daughters of immigrants it's an amazing story of america that we open up our doors for people to come in and that welcome sign has been the hallmark and to hear the the political debate just take us down this terribly sad road. It's odd. Do you Doesn't personally? Feel right. Do you feel personally? I mean, do you think your your you your parents do you, you do you feel personally uh, slighted by the discussion? Well, I feel sad for those who haven't made it in. It's one of those scenarios where hey, we we got in when the when the opportunity was right. Now people want to kick the ladder so no one else can come. So it's it's just a sad state of affairs because you know. I've got a great life here. I've not had any challenge uh, making it through. I mean, the president was kind enough to invite me to serve in this role. Uh, my background wasn't a hindrance or a limitation in any step of my life. But to think that, like, the next generation coming in is limited, it's terrible. Of course, most immigrant families feel like, how could this country be – how could we have a debate at this stage that says we, we don't want to have folks come? It's, well, it's but, odd. you know, you campaigned, as I mentioned, uh, for lieutenant governor of Virginia. I did. So you got a chance to talk to – a lot of people, including people who have been yeah. sort of caught in the switches of this economy. So you can see where the, there is a market for resentment to be mined, and there are people who are mining it. It is true. Even on our side of the aisle, uh, David, there are people who feel like their middle-class job is being uh, replaced with an overseas worker or an immigrant that's come in temporarily to take their job only to have it then later transition. So we have a lot of resentment. Do you think that anxiety. was a problem when you ran for lieutenant governor? Do you think there was some resistance to you because you were... There you was, know, uh, you know, it, there was definitely some... Um, polling we had you know studied about would that be an issue if if raised you know the notion that you know my background is affiliated and i've been investing in companies and somehow there was some relationship between what i've uh, uh, organizations I'm affiliated with, and this concept of Indian outsourcing was an issue in the uh, in the academic sense, meaning it was people were worried about it. It really didn't come up much on the trail itself. I heard a little bit of, you know, this guy's all about outsourcing jobs to India. That would be on the social media channels more so than any other kind of stage or debate publicly. But um, I think it was very modest, but, you know, a presence. You went on and you uh, you got uh, uh, an education, but not in tech technology That's per right. se, but in health issues. Yeah, and uh, in fact, it was uh, my education was largely uh, the internet was the bigger point, and that was uh, you know I left college, went to Hopkins. I was at Morgan Stanley when we took Netscape public, and that was a moment in time where really the economic forces about the power and potential of the what internet. What year was that? 1995. Uh-huh. And that Gee, public offering. So oh, stop. So that. The George Clooney. <laughs> the, George, the Indian George Clooney. Isn't that what right. John Stewart called you? Sure, sure. On, on one of my most embarrassing moments while, while working for well, the president. You look great on a podcast. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's a funny line. Yeah, no. The, the, the idea here was that the internet was going to have an impact on society. And so when I went to the Kennedy School to study public policy, I focused my energy on how the internet was going to affect the healthcare system. 
And you're right, health was my subject matter passion. But its ability to be transformed with technology, a topic the president obviously cared deeply about and did a lot for, uh, you know, drew me into the into this intersection of technology and policy, technology and health. Was there an, 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 a, a moment when you said you had an aha moment and said, man, this thing is going to change everything, the Internet? Well, I certainly felt that way. I rode the M2 shuttle bus with a young doctor by the name of John Halamka. That's a shuttle bus that takes you from the kind of Boston campus of Harvard, the medical school, over to the uh, Kennedy School. And he was just an emergency room doctor, and he was expressing to me the challenges that he was undergoing. The hospitals he was working on that were across the street from each other merged and they were trying to find a way to stitch together the medical records so they could shut down the emergency room. They didn't need to have two. It'd be more cost-effective if there was one. And instantly it hit me. They were going to spend $50, $60 million to try to recreate you know, the, the information systems for, the, um, uh, for the, the merged hospitals. And he developed for less than $50,000 an internet program that allowed them to essentially stitch together the medical records but without having to physically rip and replace all the systems. So a $50 million project replaced with a 50000 alternative because the internet enabled it to be so. So you just... This all happened on a chance bus ride. You're like, man, this is this has this is not nickel and dime five percent improvement. We're talking eighty, ninety percent improvement. And if we could unleash the full power and potential of the internet in healthcare and energy and education and transportation, you know, a lot of that which forces us to be in the left right divide, which is we want to provide access to important public goods, but they're really expensive. Gosh, if we could make those public goods more costly, cost-effective, that is, if they could be 80 90% cheaper, maybe we wouldn't have as much of a fight over whether or not we could collectively invest in some of these important uh, infrastructure projects. So you got off the bus and your life was changed. (laughs) Well, it was an example and an anecdote that was speaking to a larger story that this had potential. When you were traveling around uh, Virginia, um, it, it isn't just immigrants that people are leery of, but it's Technology also has Correct. displaced uh, folks from – it's made all these things you say possible, but it's also changed our economy right. in a way that's disadvantaged people who are doing jobs that, that can now be done uh, you know, long distance or by uh, – Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so what, what's the as – a, as a policymaker, do you think about – what do we do about that? Oh, boy, that's a phenomenal question. And the first thing was my Thank mentor – uh, well, it's a, it's actually central to the debate. I've been sitting here hoping to ask and, a phenomenal yeah. question, and I did it. Well, so because My it's, day is made. You know, we are at the – you know, it's sort of like that Rorschach test. Will yeah. this economy produce more jobs or less jobs, right? That's the big discussion that we're having. And in fact uh, – Well, it's not just that, though, because we can produce more jobs, but they may be more jobs for – for the highly educated, ah, and yes. there may be fewer jobs for people who aren't highly educated. Yes, you know, so that is the existential question. Now, we had a case study in Virginia when, when then Governor Mark Warner, before mm-hmm. I joined as Virginia's technology sector under his successor Tim Kaine, he had saw he had seen this challenge firsthand and said, "What we're going to do is we're going to." establish a public-private partnership to bring technology jobs not to Northern Virginia, which had plenty of technology jobs, but to bring technology jobs to Southwest Virginia, really the Tennessee, uh, you know, West Virginia, Kentucky nexus, if you will. And those were uh, markets that could be near as cost-effective as going overseas. In other words, the delta in cost between providing a tech job in India 
which the ri- wages are rising, and the, the, the opportunity in southwest Virginia, you could actually build a viable alternative. You could grow technology jobs in areas that previously hadn't had exposure. And increasingly, you don't have to have a PhD in physics to get one of these jobs. One of the things we worked on when the president launched his Summer Jobs Youth Initiative, which was for disadvantaged youth uh, in the first term, was we acknowledged that if you wanted to be a quality assurance technician, all you'd have to know is how to use mobile apps. You wouldn't have to have had even a a two-year degree, let alone a four-year degree, in order to get into the tech industry. So uh, quality assurance as one perspective of a tech job, you could make $100,000 a year in this country testing applications, and your on-ramp to that job could literally be a certificate or an industry credential that you could get at a high school. So we've got to find a way to democratize what a, quote, technology job means. And in in a sense, the debate we're having about career and technical education, which is, you know, the old days, it was the Votech school that you went to be a plumber or an air conditioner or a mechanic. Uh, Well, now uh, you try to be a car mechanic without understanding it software. There's more computing power in the average car today than took us to the moon. And so we're starting to see this intersection of technology into the jobs of what was previously the traditional middle class. And that is really both a challenge and an opportunity. Folks have to be educated in ways that they hadn't before, but it means many, many more opportunities for them to thrive, even if they don't see themselves in the mirror as the next Bill Gates. Yeah, but you have to have the the, the sort of infrastructure to to do that training. And That's to right. Provide, to provide that training. By the way, I don't think I could have been a very good mechanic even before the <laughs> innovations, but that's a that's a whole different story. So let's get back to yours. Yeah. Um, so you had your aha moment. You got off the bus. Yeah. And uh, and 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 then what happened? So how did how did that lead you to uh, work being secretary of if technology. technology for the uh, governor of Virginia? So so uh, I joined a firm at the uh, in Washington D.C. called the Advisory Board. Actually, to to connect the dots, Jeff Zients, who the president named to be chief performance officer before uh, heading up the NEC hired me. He was the president of the company at the time. And they focused on research and best practices for the healthcare sector. And so I joined the team to write books, to write studies that were looking at the strategic challenges facing healthcare and had the pleasure of helping craft our first foray into the role that the internet would play in healthcare, built off of my master's thesis, built off the bus ride. And so we as a company began talking about the potential of technology in healthcare, and we began incorporating technology in the services we provided. We began launching uh, software products for hospitals and health systems, and we began to grow ourselves. We were commenting on the opportunity and then eating our own dog food, building those capabilities into services that we made available. So by the time uh, we had reached some level of maturity, the company had gone public, Governor Warner asked me to help basically serve on the Medicaid board and to think about electronic health records. He put a little task force together. And I got that that flavor that policy could play a major role in getting these questions answered. What would it take to transform the delivery system? How do we unleash the power of the internet? It wasn't just buying a piece of software. We had technology challenges, policy challenges, business model challenges. It was going to require a public policy debate. And so at the end of that journey, Governor Warner was very kind to say, you might want to take a foray into this and introduced me to Senator Kane, then Governor Kane, and said, you might want to consider putting him in the cabinet. And he was kind enough to reach out and say, let's focus on electronic health records and electronic delivery of veterans benefits and thinking about uh, education in new ways. 
why don't you become my secretary of technology? Now, you're right. The U.S. government didn't have a chief technology officer, but Virginia, under a Republican governor in the late uh, 80s, uh, late 90s, was the first to become uh, a state that had a cabinet-level position called Secretary of Technology. And here's a quiz for you, David. Which Republican governor championed the country's first cabinet position for technology and government? The hint is he's a candidate for president this year. Jim Gilmore. Yes, sir. Who would have thought that? Yeah. This could propel him to half a percent. (laughs) So I... uh, I, but good for him. Good for I mean, him. I, I still can't get my arms around the fact that there wasn't a chief technology officer before right. 2009 in the U.S. government. But, and, you know, I have to tell you that my, my sense of the government when I got there is that, not surprisingly, things were done the way they've been done forever. Yes. You know, there weren't quite quills and ledgers, but it wasn't that more of uh, much more advanced. And it struck me that as you know, if we if we truly call ourselves people progressives who believe in the role of government, then we have a big obligation to try and make government work more efficiently and effectively. Uh, What did you find when you got there? I mean, were you as appalled as I was about (laughs) the state of affairs? Well, look, I came out of state government where we were still running, you know, 20-year-old, 30-year-old pieces of software. And so I was attuned to the challenges. And we really embraced the president's vision of bottom-up change. And so our, our core philosophy was if we could start opening up the data in the government, and allow anyone, whether they be government employees or nonprofits or even businesses or outsiders, to connect to that data in new and clever ways, they might be more interesting and innovative than if we got the agencies to change their direction on a dime. And it, you know, to crystallize this small example, uh, I think I was I had to be approved by the Senate, right? So the Senate approved um, you know approved the president's nomination of me in late May. And within two weeks, uh, the chief of staff, Rom, calls a meeting and says, look, the president's going to meet with Senator John McCain tomorrow about immigration was the topic. And I think there was some discussion about, well, we thought it might have been some policy discussion coming out of it, but that may not result in something. Are there areas in which we can improve the way our immigration system works for people? Because to your point of effective and efficient government, it's not the most friendly uh, experience, even if you're trying to do the right thing and come in and, and participate legally. And so the you know, president walked out of the meeting with Senator McCain and said, in 90 days, I'm going to transform the way the American people interact with our immigration department. And I challenge, you know, my CTO, my CIO, my chief performance officer. And at the very same time, he kind of you put... You knew he was going to do that, well, right? Well, of course we had to tell. We, we had to prepare. Because otherwise we had, that could be a really sign shocking up for the thing assignment. to learn in a... Yeah, well, we we signed up for the assignment. And the reason was the agency was in the middle of a billion-dollar IT modernization project, David. When we went over there and said, hey, what can we do in 90 days? They were sort of like, what? We're just like in the middle of this huge 10-year IT project. Um, We took these principles that have animated the way the Internet operates, and we said, look, let's start with the data. Let's open up the data. And it's an interesting story. What did we do in 90 days? We produced a site that flipped the model upside down. It used to be you'd have to call 
or your lawyer would have to call the immigration department, what's the status of my application? And I've been, it's like calling a black box. They won't respond. I wait on hold for hours. I don't really know what's going on. We said, hey, what if we flipped it upside down? What if it was like Burger King? Have it your way. Um, would you like us to text message you if your application process is from step one to step two? Would you like an email? Uh, would you like fries? Would you like fries? Yes. And more importantly, we demystified what it takes to have an application. So we said, how many steps does an application go through? And they said, well, 200 plus steps. Well, we, we got them to agree that there's only seven major steps that the application goes through. So why don't we disclose on the website, you're in step one. Here's the estimated time to step two. Here's what's needed to make sure that you can cross over to step three. So you demystify, you open up the data. David, the uh, customer satisfaction ratings came out. The immigration portal that was launched 90 days after the president asked us to work on it was the highest customer satisfaction rating for Hispanic Americans. Highest customer satisfaction rating of any government website. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think that, you know, uh, folks would think of the you know department of the immigration department as a place of uh you know excitement and service right it's not normally what you'd anticipate but it was the mindset that the internet has opened up in the private sector that we brought to bear and it was all government employees maybe a few contractors but very limited budget small teams of passionate people who just were unshackled for the first time because they were given the freedom to open up this information to people because Frankly, the president said that's the new default in government. And how pervasive was were your efforts over the four years that you were there? Well, the more important point is that it's really the president's efforts, as you would imagine. This I, is culture. I, I, this I, is culture. I, I will grudgingly give the president credit <laughs> for this. But, the, uh, but, it, but, but the point is really it's how a new different default. are things? Dramatically different. Uh, so if you take a look at the default setting now— Agencies are effectively publishing data by default. It used to be that you'd have to ask them for information. The reporters would often call this the FOIA problem. I apply for a FOIA. I don't know if I'm going to get the data. Freedom of Information. Freedom of Information Act. Forgive me for the acronyms. And it is still true that for many journalists who are trying to get information, that traditional model is frustrating. But on the tech side, we've now taken a lot of those previously you had to request the information to make it public to now it's public by default. There are literally 100,000 data sets on data.gov. And really, there's a whole playbook that's been evolved. You open up the government data, you work with the private industry to lower the barriers to entry and how you can use the data in combination with other sources to make health, energy, and education markets work better. We've now celebrated this week, David, the fifth year anniversary of challenge.gov. Uh, the president reminds us always that the talent in our society is not limited to Washington. You can have great ideas in the country. Well, challenge.gov means you don't have to have a PhD in government procurement to participate with Washington. If you've got a great idea to respond to a problem the agencies have put forward on challenge.gov, the best idea wins. And so we're celebrating the fifth year anniversary. The Harvard Kennedy School ranked it the most innovative government program uh, for the year in which they were uh, graded. And and we're establishing. Wait, let's just stop for a second. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to ask you how the fifth anniversary party was, <laughs> but what what did it produce uh, in terms of actual ideas? I, I'm sort of interested in. Oh, there are many examples, and so I'll give you one that's an active uh, discussion right now. Um, we have a billion-dollar hidden tax against the solar industry. Not a subsidy for the industry, a tax against the industry. 
And it's a tax that's measured by bureaucracy. It's called the soft costs. That is to say, if you benchmarked the United States against Germany, the cost of buying the solar panels and the labor costs of installing them are roughly the same. Germany in aggregate is about a billion dollars cheaper on a per, you know, if you, if you calculated the mm-hmm. full math. What accounts for the difference? It's the soft cost, the customer financing, the customer acquisition, the um, basically the permitting and the interconnection fees. So we put up a challenge at the end of the first term, a $10 million prize if mayors, utilities, and installation teams can somehow work together to get those costs down. And what's amazing, David, is that in the last month or two, they've announced five teams have pre-qualified to now get to the final rounds of this competition to get to a seven-day permit-to-plug-in time frame. I was on the phone earlier today with the Pacific Gas and Electric PG&E CIO, the IT leader, who's supporting not fighting, but supporting the teams by saying, we're going to create web connections and use the internet so we can make it easier for folks. If you want to buy a home, you'll go from permit to plug in in seven days. So David, if that works and we can cut a billion dollars of savings uh, out of the cost of solar, instead of fighting over with Congress to add a billion dollar subsidy program, which would never get uh, through this, this crazy house, uh, what, what would that mean for society? And so we're, that's a bigger idea, but there are lots of smaller ideas. Hundreds of, of agency problems have been solved in novel and clever ways because of the challenge construct of the presidents. So uh, what the hell happened on the healthcare.gov? Oh, what? So it's, it, uh, here's the bad, and I'll share the good. Okay. I think the bad is well known, but go ahead. Well, briefly on the bad. Yes. Literally... The president, before he ran for office, and may have, you know, based on your, you know, maybe the time you guys were chatting about the possibility of him running, Medicare had done a procurement to find companies capable of providing IT services to them that had never envisioned the idea of an exchange, but were just on a list of pre-qualified vendors. So when the president was successful and signed the the, the Affordable Care Act into law, CMS turned to that pre-qualified list of vendors, not to the list of people who had experience building health insurance exchanges. Is this this a flaw in government? Of course. It's the procurement problem. You can't blame the agency. They had to get it up and running relatively quickly. If they had started from scratch, David, it would have been two to three years before they could even get permission to write the first line of code. They wanted to get going, and so they said, okay, I'll use a pre-qualified list and hope that these folks know what they're doing. And to give you an example of the math, in order to get a username and a password set up on the healthcare.gov site, the, the, the first term, the team spent almost a quarter of a billion dollars just to stand up the ability to set up a username and a password. That had a $50 million annual maintenance fee just on that login process. Well, after the disaster and the SWAT team came in, uh, and the, the the folks that have experience with the internet had the chance to get in there and participate. They rebuilt that system for $4 million with maybe a quarter of a million dollar annual maintenance, a system that was only up and running 91% of the time. That meant two hours out of every day the system was down, was now 99 plus percent up and running. It used to take many seconds to process a, a, a you know an internet transaction down to milliseconds. So far better performance, dramatically lower cost. Shouldn't someone have anticipated? 
this problem? So, so, you know, this is an interesting policy question, which is, you know, obviously, as you know, from the White House perch, we didn't get involved, never get involved in procurement decisions at the agency level. And so, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of debate about, you know, what would be a better governance model around the exchange, the notion of a CEO who had a authority to make these decisions and so forth. That's been plenty debated. But here's the good. There was a version of healthcare.gov. You're relentlessly optimistic. Well, but here's the, here's the good. Yeah. When the Affordable Care Act was signed in March, our first deliverable was healthcare.gov in July. It was not the version that was selling the good plans. It was a window on top of the bad plans that could discriminate against you and upcharge you. We didn't have time to go hire big vendors and contractors and so forth. We had to build the the team ourselves. And that team hit the ball ball out of the park. Yeah, right. I I know. I I appreciate that. And I'm I'm glad that the problem was addressed. I can just tell you personally, as someone who worked very, very hard to help the president pass the Affordable Care Act. So sad. There wasn't a there. There probably wasn't a single more damaging, yeah, uh, thing that's happened in the last seven years. And I, I was I was pissed about it. I was angry because uh, so many people had worked so hard to make this happen. And then uh, you know, and 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 I think I had the same thought as everybody else in America, which is how could this how be? could given the priority this was. How could it have happened? Yeah. How could it have happened? You were on the outside. You had just left. Yes. Uh, what was your reaction when you started seeing these reports? Did people call you and say, Oh, yeah. Geez, you, you should see what's going on over here. No, 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 no. So let me, you know, this is the challenge of, you know, uh, you know hindsight, if you will. So, uh, David, one bit of contextual history. We were involved in... At, at the White House level in 2010 or early 2011, the theory was let's fund the states to do the initial software development. If you remember, the idea was each state would have their own exchange. The feds would be responsible for this hub where you could confirm the citizenship status and the uh, tax uh, you know, uh, estimator and so forth. That piece of the software actually worked the entire time. But the the challenge was the you know the states were supposed to actually prototype some of this stuff, and the feds were going to maybe backfill or do some secondary work off of these exchanges. The states basically threw up their hands, as you recall. Two out of the five states we wrote checks for. We, we gave uh, two hundred million dollars of checks to states in within six months of the law getting passed. Two of the states were Oklahoma and Kansas. They had elections, David, in November of two thousand ten. Mary Fallon was elected in Oklahoma, and Sam Brownback was elected in Kansas. They took the checks that we gave them that their teams begged for so they could build a better experience for the people of their states, and they literally ripped up those checks and said, go pound sand. People that had spent their time designing and proposing that they would do the engineering work and— Because you think they— didn't want the, the thing to succeed. Well, that's exactly what they said. They said we don't we, we don't want your Obamacare money, right? And so the states, literally, the best proposal from a state to build the exchange was Oklahoma. They had the best vision, the right team. There were some states where the governors were. I mean, Maryland, for example, had a sure. terrible experience. Sure. So I I accept all that. Really, what I'm trying to get at is something more personal to you. No, it was which very depressing. Is, uh, uh, how you reacted when you saw oh, this thing unfold. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. 
Because so many of the principles that the president put forward on how we were supposed to modernize the government just weren't followed. And it was disheartening. And everything is about what could I have done differently? What was I supposed to do? What could I have done to influence this? How did I uh, fail our president? We all have a sense of failure. Now, truthfully, I, I was out in 2012 to, to, to leave uh, uh, and run for, for office. So the bulk of this activity really was was kind of in that time, you know, po- post my, my departure. Yeah, we, but, did, we, we will absolve you. No, but I don't mean that to say that. No, I understand. But I'm... The mechanics of it were, you know, we had a lot riding on the success of this. Yes. And, 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 and uh, you know... It also, the fact is that I embrace what you're saying about the great capacity yes. of technology and the internet to really revolutionize the way government does its work, yes. the way it delivers services. But that has become a poster child it has. for failure. And it makes it harder to sell people on these initiatives. You know? Well, but what's fascinating is what's happened now. We've leapfrogged. So the heart of what I've been thinking about is the line between the government and the private sector and the nonprofit community is blurring when it comes to uh, these digital services. So not only can you shop now on healthcare.gov, but if you can't figure out which plan is right for you, there are dozens of alternative places you can go and that might give you a recommendation. So uh, I mentioned the fact that uh, you know Uber surveyed their drivers and found that like 60% of them said, even though I can shop on healthcare.gov, I don't know which plan to pick. It's complicated. Shopping for health insurance is complicated. So rather than just say, go try harder. They you don't know, know whether to get the black car plan or right, the yeah, plan. Yeah. The- but what happens is they found a startup that called Stride Health that said, hey, we're going to take the raw information from healthcare.gov and we're going to bring our own intelligence and data mining and so forth, we can help give you a single cost estimator. Forget all this deductible, premium, copay, coinsurance language, which is very, you know, disarm. It's very alarming for people. What does all this mean? They say, hey, here's your estimated cost. For you, for who you are, for the expected expenses you're going to incur in healthcare, here's your estimated cost. And uh, they're going to compete on providing a better estimator. And if people choose better plans because Tools like Stride mm-hmm. and others are available. It's an example of how the internet allows us to connect resources in new and clever ways. The average senior on Medicare Part D is mis- is leaving $500 on the table because they pick the wrong plan. Having a site that works doesn't solve the problem of what plan do you pick. You got to have these you know, growing number of services that can say, hey, for you and your family, for the medications you've been on and what we think you might be on given your chronic condition, here's the plan that's right for you. That kind of advisor recommendation yeah. service, that's what's coming. And I think that's really the, the excitement of what the president's now done with all this. So in that work. vein, put your visionary cap on. Yes, sir. Uh, not that Donald Trump. Uh, make, <laughs> make America, America great. great. Those are nice, but put your visionary cap on and tell me uh, what you th- how you see the the next yeah. ten years. Look down the road. Yeah. What is healthcare going to look like? Yeah. What is you? I know you work in the education yeah. field. Yeah. In energy. What? How? How is this technology going to continue to evolve? And yeah. what, what can we expect the world to look like in ten years? So there are. Th- let's take three. Healthcare first. The average American will get the right care in the right setting at the right time. The net effect of that is that we'll save about a third of the healthcare spend because of essentially better value in the system. Why? If I know 
and my digital advisor, that's like my my friendly uh, uh, advisor, if you will, can anticipate the next step in my healthcare journey. They might influence, you know what, you might want to seek a telemedicine consult to check on something that if you let linger for another couple days might manifest into something that requires you to be admitted to the hospital. Let's get it early so we can treat you before you get that uh, more difficult outcome. So we're going to have these advisors that we're going to entrust with all of our health information. They're going to mine that information and say, gosh, we think you should get that checkup or you should come in for that additional, oh, you've got back pain? We think you should see this physical therapist before you see that orthopedic surgeon because chances are people like you get back on your feet because this can really work the issue out without you having to have a surgery you didn't need. So on healthcare, we're going to see people advised, if you will, to get care at the right time and in the right location and hopefully at a much better price. So that's that's the healthcare piece. You know, we have this digital divide. Yeah. Is, are are um, people who aren't fluent in yeah. the internet, how are they going to take advantage of this? So th- the best way to think about this is when the country went from pension plans to 401ks, we democratized information and gave people the ability to make choices on their own. But not everybody went and got their PhD in finance to sort out what stocks right. to buy. Yes. It gave rise to an industry that were called uh, you know, fiduciaries, right? Brokers, Vanguard, Fidelity for the masses. I don't have to have that PhD in healthcare data or to have a smartphone or to have any of these sort of uh, modern tools. All I have to do is hand the proverbial key of all my information to the person I trust, whose then job it is to provide me that information back. It might be a phone call that I wasn't expecting that reminds me to do something. But what it, when it allowed that phone call to happen was this digital connectivity, the, uh, the internet working in the background. And so in health, in energy and education, information will flow to where we think and have the highest and greatest use. And that might mean for me personally that I'm trusting someone else to do that work for me because there, our system allows for that. The President's Affordable Care Act actually will reward healthcare organizations that provide those recommendations to me. Right now, doing so will be at your peril if you're a, a, a hospital because you're going to lose revenue. Whereas if you're going to be a part of the future, making sure that people get the care in the right setting that lowers the cost is actually – you get to share in that, that savings. Do you ever worry about all this information – Trafficking sure. out there on the internet. Absolutely. And I think that's a concern for people. It is. And in fact, this is another example where governments played a very important role. You know, Facebook and Twitter allow you to open up your information and protect it, usernames and passwords, and we're reasonably good about it. But, you know, you're you're not going to have your life, uh, unless you're a celebrity with, with bad photos, your, your life won't end if your, your Facebook account is, is lo- logged into by another person. Maybe embarrassing, but it doesn't doesn't hurt your your overall uh, stature in life. But if it's your healthcare data, if it's your students' learning records, if mm-hmm. it's your yeah. energy data coming off of the smart meter that's at your home that decides you know when and where you're using your energy, that needs a higher level of security. And so one of the important things that we'd, we'd been working on to close this innovation gap is to get the government to play the convener, to work with the private sector to say, let's upgrade the security and privacy in health and energy and education where we regulate you anyway. We're not going to prescribe for you exactly how to do it. We probably would over-engineer it, but let's create the conditions for those industries to improve the quality. So here's a small little example. If you and I wanted to email our health records to each other in the old days, if I sent it to you on Gmail or whatever, it's like 
susceptible to hacking. Anyone could grab your email. Well, in less than 90 days, we challenged the private sector, develop more secure standards, a secure version of email where I can identify exactly who the sender is, exactly who the receiver is, and I can encrypt the message in between. And in less than 90 days, we had a prototype of what a secure email foundation would look like. And now it's in regulation for every doctor. I know. My goodness, how challenging. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the point. Every doctor, every patient, every uh, nurse in theory today can have a basically a secure email account where they can participate on the health internet. The um, uh, just one more question on this: What's the what? Are, what is the classroom of the future going to look like? Um, Twenty four by seven. So what will happen is the the child will leave the classroom, uh-huh. and on their digital checkout from the classroom, a mom, a guidance counselor, the local four H center where the kid goes after school can digitally reconnect with that child, and they'll pick up the learning just as they left. So as an example. If I uh, find myself struggling with fractions and proportions, but I want to play a game when I get home, I can connect that game to my my, my child's uh, performance data, and they may tee up aspects of the game that will effectively uh, help my kid understand the concepts that they struggled with in the classroom. And then the teacher will find out how far I've progressed. So by the time the teacher hands back on, you know, gets the handoff from the, the digital services in the home to the to the teacher in the classroom, they'll be able to understand exactly where this kid is and where they aren't. So you'll have much more personalized instruction, personalized tutoring, personalized intervention, because we're going to have these systems talk to each other in a safe, secure way. Um, virtual reality, uh, foot, school football games. <laughs> I don't know about all no, that. You can play on yeah. the football team without ever leaving your You're home. right. And no, no fear of a concussion on the child, right? Yeah. You, can, uh, you can be safe and competitive. So... You ran for office. Yeah. One of my missions in life now is to try and persuade young people that being involved in politics, being involved in the system, yeah. is you lost. I did. Uh, do you think you might do it again? Or, or Absolutely. Or- this is such an exciting uh, era. So running and losing is just as empowering as, you know, I don't know if it's as empowering. It's obviously less than if you won. But the, the the conversations I would have with folks that I normally wouldn't meet in my you know techie life uh, really gave me a perspective about where we have problems and challenges where we got to focus our energies. And I was shocked at just the reaction. If you go to some of the toughest towns in Virginia, I may have won 60, 70 percent. If I spoke to a local mayor of a community, I, the moonshine capital of the East Coast is Franklin County, Virginia. I carried that county right, so north I have of to write that down. 70%. Uh, I carried 70% of the vote uh, against someone who's from rural Virginia. And and so it was fascinating. Not because they were drunk. No, okay. no. It was, uh, you know, the, the message resonated. And, and so, you know, you, you look at the uh, reaction and yes, I did a tough, I had a tough run. Older white women, you know, went to my opponent like 75, 25 or something. But not because I think they were against what I was saying. It's that he was fighting for women's rights. Remember the transvaginal ultrasound was the fight mm-hmm. in Virginia. Yeah. And so there was a rationale for why the, the vote fell the way it did. Look, we're, we've got decades ahead of us and a lot to do to fix the country. And I do believe in laboratories of democracy. States are going to be the place where this is going to happen. I'm intending to be as active as I can. And, you know, the governor just uh, yesterday asked me to take on, on the Council on Virginia's Future. And, you know, we're going to work on this, uh, making the workforce system work better for people. So we're going to set up a program that allows 
you know, employers to communicate what they're looking for and to have schools and universities respond faster mm-hmm. to the demand That's and good. to make sure that job seekers connect. So this is an opportunity. It's, it's going to be exciting to give this a shot again in the future. Well, Anish, I, um, I just wanted to go long enough where I could stump you. I've given up on that. You have, you have, you have uh, thought about all this stuff. Um, but you, you, you feel clearly you, you are, you are as a bullion as I remember you yeah. when we worked together about what the It's an exciting time and solving problems. In the problem-solving business, the point I'd make to you, David, and I want to applaud you for what you've done with the IOP here at the University you of Chicago. Take your time. I will. The point I'd say to you is I went to the Kennedy School and I, I, and I teased our dean uh, recently. You know, I got exposed to the muscles of cost-benefit analysis, um, understanding political dynamics to get to legislative uh, success. The muscles in the gym we worked out were these traditional policy levers. And I think the takeaway from our conversation is that there's a new muscle that needs to be worked out. And that's understanding the role that technology, data, and innovation can play in problem solving as another muscle we need to work out. And I think with the event we're doing tonight with the Civic Hackathon that you guys had sponsored, the idea that the American people can come together to join in problem solving using these new muscles gives me such hope that even if we've got congressional gridlock and we can't see another major piece of legislation happen for a little while in the future, we can do so much to make health, energy, and education markets work better just by exercising this muscle. Isn't it telling? I'll leave you with this final thought, David. Um, when the president spoke of Ferguson, his policy speech afterwards was to go to Camden, New Jersey. And what did he announce? Did he announce new money for police officers? Did he announce a new regulation to compre- you know, protect? No. He announced an open police data initiative. He, he, he flew to Camden to talk about open data as a policy lever to create transparency. So we're on the same page about what's happening in this social fabric. You would never have imagined a president of the United States issuing a policy uh, that has nothing more or less than tapping into this expertise. And it says a lot about the tools that are in the toolkit for policymakers over the next decade. There's a lot we can do. We're just getting started. And I'm hopeful it's going to happen at the federal level. It's going to happen at the state level. It's going to happen at the local level and internationally and between public and private sectors. And so I call this handshakes and handoffs, the idea that there's a lot of bipartisanship around these tools. These muscles, these technology data innovation muscles are not that controversial. It was Daryl Issa who led the charge to get the Data Act passed. It was Eric Cantor that promoted the Jobs Act, which promoted entrepreneurship and innovation. These are not people that the president normally turned to as allies in the legislative process, but they were partners in this movement of open data, open innovation, solving problems, bottom-up, entrepreneurial culture. And so that's why I'm so excited. Who couldn't be excited about this? Yeah. How about an app? That just makes Congress work more efficiently. We can work get, on it. Can you get your brainiacs right. working on that? <laughs> Let's do that. Anyway, Anish thank Chopra, you. thank you so much. Uh, really, you're, I always got a kick out of your your energy in the White House, and, and I'm glad to see that you're the same guy I remember. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The X-Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.